Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. someone the other day, I feel like my purpose is to help health organizations really break down the barriers that keep them from operating as a connected ecosystem. And I really believe that that relies on their ability to share data. And I'm super stubborn about that. And so Perhaps my stubbornness about wanting to break down those silos and helping to share data from, you know, really fueling discovery to how we deliver care and informing that to, you know, how we shape care to have a higher quality, not just for a group of people, but for individuals. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Health agencies at the federal, state, and local levels have led the country through an unprecedented set of public health challenges over the past few years. The pandemic tested our legislators and regulators. It strained every element of the healthcare supply chain from pharmaceutical companies, healthcare providers, and distribution networks to the military our courageous first responders and civilian agencies at all levels of government. At the federal level specifically, health mission agencies are leveraging IT to advance medical research, strengthen and empower care, improve patient experience, and so much more. They're investing with a few critical objectives in mind, including improving patient care and outcomes, expanding health equity and access for those underserved populations, reducing the cost of delivering and managing healthcare, and securing patient data with federal expenditures on healthcare projected to climb to 2.2 trillion by 2030, the market for technology companies and service providers and the potential for them to contribute to the public good is enormous. One company doing just that is Accenture Federal Services. And today I'm speaking with Jill Olmsted, the managing director and health consulting leader at the company. Recently, she was named a top healthcare exec 
by Washington Exec. And in her role, she's helping clients modernize systems, harness the power of their data, and implement new generative AI solutions to enhance research, speed up discovery, shape public health policies, and transform care delivery. And we're going to touch on all these topics, plus take a look at what the year has in store for us and the differences between what federal health care looks like right now versus before the pandemic. So let's bring her on. Jill, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me. No, it, honestly, this is going to be a pleasure. And when I was looking into your background, one of the things I'd love to kick this conversation off with is to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with uh, children, uh, Children's in with NIH. I think when you see those types of things in someone's background, I mean, one, you can't help but want to ask questions about it. But two, it really shows that you have a significant passion in this area. So we'd love to hear more about kind of your work there with NIH. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're not familiar with the Children's Inn at NIH, it operates as a place like home uh, for kids who are participating in clinical trials at NIH, uh, as well as their families. So as you can imagine, uh, you know, for children who may be, let's say, in a cancer research study, uh, of course, their parents have to be with them for a variety of reasons. Um, but that experience, like going to the hospital for any of us, is intimidating and challenging. And you don't really get to be a kid all the time when you're going through something like that. Um, and so the Children's Inn is that place like home. So, you know, it's not just housing, but are there uh, other friends who they can just be a kid with? Are there resources where they can make a home-cooked meal uh, studying games, things like that, that really make it uh, a much better place to be when you're participating. So it's amazing. I've been a part of the board for a number of years, and it's great really to see how the mission of our health clients manifests in the work that they do. That's really great. I, I did a little work with uh, Fisher House, and it sounds very similarly uh, kind of connected in the same way Fisher House kind of supports the families of uh, service members that are going through kind of medical treatments and things like that after they come home. And um, I, I love that you're kind of supporting. And, and I think you said it, allowing the kids to be kids and having that um, that ecosystem around them to support is is just uh, so necessary. I think when you're going through challenging times like that and, and getting to help facilitate that must be really rewarding. Yeah, it really is. And it's not just for the kids, but you think of all the stresses the parents go through. And so it's a great support network. And uh, of course, Fisher House is an amazing charity as well. So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, being a being a parent of three kids, knowing that if if I had a kid going through that, the the support system is, is really necessary. So I know I appreciate you sharing some of that. I think that's, it's important. I really wanted to kick the, the conversation off that way. And let's jump into something that I think... Um, all of us can relate to. Uh, we've all been going through or, or went through um, the pandemic in some form or fashion, right? And I was talking to a coworker at one point going through, and it's really interesting to say it's something that everyone in the entire world is connected by. It, everybody went through it. Everybody had that experience of maybe wearing a mask or getting vaccinated or whatever it was going through that process. But I think another thing that's really interesting is you saw how much governments are involved in not just healthcare policy, but really um, the practicing of, of healthcare as well and, and supporting that area. And I'm really curious to know, I mean, you've, you've been in this field for a really long time. 
How have you seen things change from a federal perspective around healthcare pre-pandemic into post-pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think what we saw as the pandemic came forward was, you know, we all had to have new ways of working. Um, and many of those ways of working, that virtual culture has stayed with us. But I think the thing that I also saw was how people bonded together and they broke down a lot of the silos in government and especially in health, where it might have been a challenge to share data or do certain things. Those walls of those silos really came down and we began to share more data. We began to implement more technology, not just as a nice to have or, you know, frankly, some of the technologies that came around or some of the policy changes you know, really were things that we talked about for years, but we finally had this motivation uh, to get them done. And so I think the result has been, you know, radically different ways of working. And they're coming together now with so many changes in the world and how we use data uh, and AI and just so many exciting things in the future. I've asked so many people on this show, and I'm uh, this very same question, I'm curious from a healthcare perspective to get your opinion here. We've taken a look across maybe the adoption of technology within government and across all different sectors. And it feels like, obviously, while that technology had been there and it had been maybe commercial best practice, it really took a um, like a draconian event like the pandemic to really spearhead a lot of the envelopment of that technology kind of into a healthcare ecosystem in that way. Do you think that, and this is this is the question, do you think that healthcare systems and, and federal health uh, care agencies are going to require those types of catalysts for them to do that? Or do you think that catalyst was enough for them to continue thinking uh, a little bit more forward into the new technologies they can bring on based on the benefits that maybe they saw during the pandemic? Yeah, I'd like to think, I'm very optimistic, I'd like to think that they're going to, you know, continue down this path. It's it's certainly needed. I think, you know, we saw uh, a whole host of things that have been challenges for a long time, some of which was getting, you know, information about cases of COVID, you know, up to CDC for surveillance. And that has to pass through our public health system you know, starting with the providers, going up to the states who technically are those regulators at that level, uh, and then up to CDC so it can get the information it needs to make policy decisions. Um, we also saw it in how organizations were willing to share data for research purposes. So you had organizations like NIH at the forefront of discovery working with uh, certainly the pharmaceutical industry, when you're thinking about vaccine development um, or other research that was relevant, we really had to pull information together. And, you know, it also manifested, you know, of course, in many different ways with, of course, health protection or even VA's fourth mission. So, yes, there's, you know, the benefits in the healthcare and the cemeteries, but they provide a, a, a surge support uh, for the American healthcare system when that's needed. And hopefully we don't need that again, but I'd like to think folks are going to continue, you know, investing resources to really bring down those silos, make a more connected healthcare ecosystem. You touched on the, the regulators in policy. How much do you think this has had an impact on kind of reshaping what that could look like? Because I mean, in a myriad of different uh, areas of government, 
we saw during the pandemic, even before the pandemic, that the technology was there, really policy was holding it up. One, one example that I, I often go back to, because it's such a, a clear one, is we've had electronic signature for how long, but there were states during the pandemic that still required a wet signature to, to work. And they had to go in very quickly through legislation to change that policy just to be able to facilitate very simple things. So you saw that where policy got in the way and they were able to kind of move it. What type of policy, I guess, changes do you think that might have happened during the pandemic or the rate at, at which things might have happened during the pandemic do you think could continue as we look down in the future? I think telehealth is probably the most glaring example where there were so many limitations on it previously. And frankly, this is where VA led the way because they they will do things their own way and be at the forefront of change. And they really said it's so important for us to be able to care for veterans. We're going to do virtual care, uh, not just telehealth, meaning over the phone, but they've really expanded their definition. And I think what you saw, you know, in regulators with CMS was that reaction to say, you're right, we absolutely have to do this and we have to compensate our, our uh, clinicians accordingly. And so that's really opened the door to create access to care in so many new ways, um, whether it's the convenience that we all love for that virtual care or being able to reach someone where they're really not physically, geographically as close to a provider as, as they would like to be. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it, it's, it is interesting to think about organizations like the VA that have oftentimes, I think, have been stigmatized with kind of bad narratives around certain things. And you take a look and say, well, they really are trying to look more forward facing. I think they are trying to figure it out. I think sometimes they're inhibited a little bit. Um, I know you've used the word future fluent. And I'm interested to get your take on kind of what that means and how you think governments are currently doing that and maybe best ways for governments to be doing that in the future. You know, I think when you look at our clients uh, across the board, the federal health agencies, what you're seeing is adoption of new technologies moving quickly. Uh, you certainly have seen that with virtual care uh, in VA. The Defense Health Agency has certainly put out there a, a digital first vision um, that is helping them transform. And it's one thing to say, I want to do these you know, technology programs, um, but it's a whole, whole nother to really empower the workforce. And so it's not just those types of things where I'm implementing a system, but when you really look at, at I have to have these data standards to share data. I need to have data scientists help me on things like discovery. We've seen so many you know, amazing discoveries already popping up with the use of generative AI. Um, how we use other automation and things to scale and connect our work, you know, it, it's becoming really complex and it's exciting what the possibilities are, but we have to prepare the folks who work in health to change along with that. And that can take time when you think about traditional adoption curve, let's say when you're upgrading a particular system, how someone learns how to use it, and then when they're proficient. We're changing in a much faster clip these days where we've got to be thinking about the workforce earlier, how we upskill, reskill folks, um, and change the nature of that work. How much do you 
federal leaders take a look at kind of what's happening in the commercial industry? I mean, you you said it, right? I mean, in healthcare and basically, again, every every industry within government, everything's changing so fast. Um, and keeping up with technology, keeping up with basically all the different trends happening is really challenging. How much does government look into uh, commercial best practice, especially in um, some of the the major healthcare systems, to to say, hey, we should be doing more of that? And how much collaboration is really happening across these? Are there are there ways for them to do that? It's every day. It is absolutely every day. I think one of the things that we at Accenture hear from our clients is that they want to understand what those best practices are. Um, and they want to be at the leading edge. The federal government can't be quite so behind. Uh, the commercial world is perhaps it has been in the past in certain instances. And so, you know, I think when you look at our health clients in federal, you have the largest payer that's out there. You think about CMS and uh, the money that they have and the things that they do. You think about um, and, and the equivalent of that to payers in the commercial world. You think about the care that gets provided at VA and in the military health system and certainly in the Indian health system and other places. Um, and they have their commercial equivalents in providers and hospitals and health systems out there as well. Likewise, for all other parts of federal health. I think they have a lot of affinity with those and a relationship that really is um, something that's mutually beneficial for them to share. So we are seeing those partnerships, whether it's a formal public-private partnership, whether it's with industry groups, um, or just sharing best practices in some of the programs, even if it's under a grant program, um, where they're able to come together and make those connections. I've said before, and and I really believe this. I think from a from a private sector perspective, um, I think we can come into environments. I say we because I work in private sector. I think we can come in environments with those best practices, and I think it's important. But I take it even a step further and say I think it's a responsibility of groups on the outside to be able to say, "Hey, this is what we're seeing," and we know you're kind of so focused because public sector really gets focused on the mission, right? They have a very challenging mission. They mm -hmm. have to be all things to all people at all times. So when you have groups on the outside that can come in and help, I think it's a responsibility of those groups. What is Accenture doing to kind of help educate your customers and and just the the field in general on to help them keep up with what best practice looks like in commercial industry? You know, I think it's on a number of fronts. I mean, you know, there's those daily interactions, of course, that we have with clients. And I like to think that what we do is bring together blended teams of folks who know these agencies and maybe they work exclusively with federal health agencies, but we're also bringing to bear those resources from our commercial clients really to share that information. And that's that's really the front line. We certainly are sharing things like thought leadership, but we're also creating those connections and relationships that maybe they don't always exist so that they one-to-one -one, without necessarily having Accenture as an intermediary, if you will, can build those relationships, which I think makes it stronger and reinforces their learning uh, in an unfiltered way. Um, and we'll continue to do that. It's exciting. It's much more interesting for us as well. Sure. Uh, but they certainly have formal mechanisms on their own, and we're seeing that more and more.
one of the big trends across government is really a, a hyper focus. I, I mean, I believe it's a hyper focus on customer experience. Um, I know it's, I've heard customer experience, citizen experience, I hear resident experience, and I'm sure you're very much focused on patient experience. Um, how much are the leaders that you're talking to in the federal healthcare systems really focused on that patient experience and also patient engagement, helping them feel engaged in their own type of uh, health life cycle or patient life cycle? I think it's top of mind for anyone who touches patients, you know, it, not just in direct care, but in regulating the health system, organizations like CMS are certainly, you know, concerned about what does quality look like for patients. And I think you can look at quality very broadly and think not just about what's that patient experience with the appropriate care, but what is the access to care? How hard or easy is it? How do we understand the cost of care, which is always a big question uh, that's more transparent than it's been in the past, but still difficult sometimes for patients to understand. And then what does care look like? We talked about you know telehealth and virtual health, that convenience factor that comes with it. And sometimes just the timing uh, and availability to meet with someone when you really do need them. So I think there's all sorts of aspects that you know each of our clients is really interested in and how they best serve patients today. And some of the work that I've done um, focused on the the citizen side, not not the not the the patient side. Um, but I took a look at where data can really be enveloped to support um, kind of predictive experiences. Uh, when we look at at a citizen life cycle, right? Um, things like getting your driver's license or um, even even as far reaching as retirement, right? There's things across or milestones across somebody's life that can really be predicted based on certain data points and other milestones. Um, where are we on the healthcare side on that predictive journey? Because I feel like on obviously there's some that are going to be extemporaneous, right? But there's others from a healthcare perspective, you think somebody turns 40, 45, whether they're a male or female, they can have um, certain uh, certain appointments that need to be made. Where or How close are we to getting to where that is just going to be commonplace uh, in healthcare? You know, I, I think it's growing all the time right now. And there's a couple examples of, you know, how I see it coming to bear you know, certainly when you think about an organization like Veterans Affairs, um, the way they integrate with the public, the way they interface with the public is, you know, frankly, from a patient care perspective and their facilities. And so um, when you think about the amount of data that they have as a, you know, single captive population that they can see in their electronic health record, they can do quite a bit of analytics to really show you know, here's some things that are leading indicators. Now, that's what you can do with the analytics. You have to be able to translate that into actual care delivery. And that's something that everyone is really working on. I think you also see it quite a bit on the research side. So when you think about some of the federal research organizations, 
you know, they're using not only the research data today, but electronic health record data that they get from clinical care and other sources of real world data. So whether that's from wearables or it's retail data or other sources um, that can be helpful, really understanding what's out there. Uh, and so, you know, how does that you know, perhaps indicate disease or the potential for so that we can craft interventions uh, in care on the front end um, in order to change, you know, the level of health for everyone. Let's get into some trends that you're seeing. So you're obviously working with a lot of organizations. Um, you talked about being future fluent. So you guys are obviously taking a look into the future to help and some of the, the groups that you're working with adapt, right, to, to what is going to be coming. So what is coming? What are some of the things that you're seeing and you're helping them adapt to? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's really exciting for us to be a part of some of this. So we're seeing a lot of clients start to experiment with generative AI. Um, and there's so many different use cases for how they might do things uh, and the potential impact and health across all of our uh, you know, different federal health agencies. That's got so much attention right now. And I think to make that a reality, I sort of look back at the past few years in health where from an Accenture standpoint, three plus years ago, we invested $3 billion in cloud. Because in looking to the future, we said, you're really gonna have to be in the cloud if you wanna do some of these forward looking things. And that really inspired a lot of folks, not just to move to the cloud, but to change how their systems operate and to modernize. And now in the past year, we've made another $3 billion investment, which is into AI, which is including generative AI, um, because we know not only do you have to be in the cloud in order to use some of the, the new AI tools, you need to bring your data together in that way to be able to do new things, to gain new insights, um, you know, whether it is for, you know, research and can I discover a new drug or can I find a new indicator, you know, potentially for a disease or can I think about the delivery of care? There's so many different ways to use it. And so I think what we're seeing is, you know, those who are out front on cloud are able to be more out front on data and do some really exciting things. We also see, as you might expect, some folks who need to really catch up so that they can harness the power of their data. And I think what we're on tap to see in the future is, is that builds what really are going to be those changes. And then, frankly, I also think we're going to have a little bit of struggling around, you know, making sure that we're, we're following those guidelines of responsible AI. Not that we're not committed to those. And certainly the administration has leaned in on that and that's very helpful. But just because this is so new and people continue to think about use cases, um, it is a very exciting time. Um, but like any new technology or capability, how we sort of manage or regulate that when necessary is gonna be very important at the same time. So that's interesting. All right, and, and let me make sure I'm I'm clear on sort of what you're saying. Because I agree with you. I think one of the challenges of ethical AI isn't that people want to be unethical. I, in my opinion, I think it's that they see all the cool things that you could do and then forget about maybe the ramifications of serving everybody 
in that way, right? We have all this data and what if we could go here and here and here and you forget about the fact that, yeah, but at the same time, you're leveraging data that people may not want you to leverage in a way that is, even though it might be beneficial to some, it might be adverse to others. Is that sort of what you're saying? Well, I think in addition to that, so, you know, we've talked for years about owning our own data. Um, and that's a very important concept and the privacy associated with it and how it ultimately gets used. But I also think about the fairness of the data um, and any biases that may exist. So when you think about health equity and the inequities that have existed historically, we're relying on that historical data that may fail to appropriately address different populations. And so are you perpetuating uh, an existing bias into the future? by how you're working with the data. So we really want to be mindful of that in terms of responsible AI. And there's just that range of issues from making sure that things are private and secure as they need to be. But also, are we considering, you know, how do we foster health equity? What needs to change? How is that different? And I think we're really still figuring that out. No, I think that's a really good point. And, and I think that narrative probably isn't just in the healthcare space, right? I think it's across all different areas, especially- Oh, absolutely. You, yeah, when you're tip of the spear serving citizens, I think taking a look at making sure you're not inserting bias and you're you're doing equitable delivery, I think that is something that we still haven't figured out yet. Because I think, again, I go back to the fact that I think most people want to do the right thing, but we almost inherently don't because we're not sure exactly what we're doing in that way. So it just, it becomes a challenge. and. Part of it is because technology advances so fast. We can't even keep up with all the different things that we can do. I mean, I think that's certainly a major, major problem that you and I probably aren't solving in this, in this podcast <laughs> today, but I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're able to have that conversation. Um, yeah. and, we, and when we talk about uh, equitable delivery of services, I feel like you can't have that conversation without talking about outcomes. Right. And I think it's probably what most of the organizations, I say most of, but it's probably 100% of the organizations that you're working with are focused on. What is some of it like advice that you would give to organizations out there on best ways to bring kind of technology into the fold without losing sight of the fact that they are, they have to be focused on outcomes, right? Because we see it, it's a little bit of, a catch 22, you want to bring the latest technology in, but you don't want to make things so complex that you forget about the mission, right? You forget about the outcomes you're really looking to solve. So what advice do you have for organizations that are looking to do just that continue to, and maybe even increase, obviously the, the better outcomes they're getting, but bringing merging technology on to kind of support that mission. Yeah. So we're having a lot of conversations, as I mentioned about you know, experimentation with generative AI. And I think a first inclination is to, you know, for a customer who's asking, solve the problem closest to them. And that can be important and it can be a proof point, but how does it inform a larger strategy? So is, is your pilot or proof of concept something that you can scale to really be as meaningful as possible to your mission? And 
And frankly, how is it relevant to the partners you have in that mission? Because let's face it, no agency operates, you know, without those partnerships, whether they're other agencies or the public, et cetera. And I think the conversations that we come back to in order to get those outcomes are to really be focused on, you know, what are your biggest problems? What is in your strategy? And if you want to do something to begin addressing that to get to those bigger outcomes, can we take a smaller subset of that and get you started and then help you build uh, from that perspective? And that way you avoid, you know, frankly, creating lots of new stovepipes of little special projects, but ones that don't necessarily get the impact that we know our federal clients are looking for. It makes a lot of sense. And and the more you the more you talk, the more I, I just keep thinking about the fact that I feel like there's so many patterns across just technology implementation into government, no matter what sector you're working in, whether it's healthcare, um, whether it's energy, no matter, uh, uh, could be workforce issues, it, the same type of problems really exist in all those areas. And it's finding those common patterns around implementation and best practices and, and I guess scaling them out. Obviously, there are some specifics to a highly regulated industry like healthcare. But I think at the end of the day, um, I think we can learn a lot from other groups and kind of how, uh, on how they're doing things, right? And and I think kind of what you're saying is exactly right. I think just taking that that kind of moderate approach in kind of how you're doing it, but don't lose sight of the fact that technology for technology's sake isn't the answer. It's kind of finding ways to align it to what your goals are. So I think that's so important. Um, before we get into the the final five, I have one last question for you. Uh, mm -hmm. As I was doing some research for this conversation, I saw different articles pop up around healthcare.gov aligned to Accenture Federal Services for over a decade now. So I'm not up to speed on where we are on healthcare.gov and really haven't heard a lot of headlines around it Um in about a decade right, from the launch. And obviously we all kind of probably remember what happened with the launch, but could you help bring people up to speed on kind of where we are with, with healthcare.gov right now and kind of what the future of that, of that looks like for, for citizens out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we are so fortunate to be able to support a program with the impact and reach uh, as healthcare.gov um, is, you know, we, started with that program a number of years ago when there were some initial struggles. Um, Accenture was brought in to help really scale, modernize, bring up to date the technology, but also get it deployed, um, which had not been done successfully at the time. And um, over that time in that decade, there's been quite a bit of, of growth in the program. And I think one of the most important things that I would say is what that program meant to folks during the pandemic. And so, as I'm sure you recall, uh, there were a number of challenges with care where folks appropriately insured, did they have access um, you know, certainly thinking about the strain that that all the hospitals and health systems felt. And um, in the course of that, you really thought about how are we going to take care of Americans? And really CMS stepped up and that program met a lot of needs for folks that created access to care by by insuring people. And uh, recently, 
the program wrapped up its open enrollment for this year that ended on January 16th. And it was just a banner here in terms of the number of Americans. And I believe the number right now is estimated at 21.3 million who use the federal exchanges in order to get access uh, to insurance, to have quality insurance at a reasonable price. And that was just really exciting. It makes us feel good when you think about that many Americans who now have care based on a project we support. That's very cool. One of my favorite things about being able to do this podcast is having conversations with people like yourself and others. And the patterns that I see really, whether they're on the private sector side or government side, is just kind of the passion they feel in, in what they're doing. And I think that really is shown from the very start of our conversation into now and, and kind of the work that you guys are doing at Accenture. Um, I think it's great. And um, really, uh, congratulations on, on the great work that you are doing, because you're obviously impacting millions and millions of Americans um, from the outside in, which is very cool. Thank you. It's an exciting place to work, and it certainly pulls at all of our heartstrings. Well, before I let you go, I, I can't uh, I can't not ask you the final five questions. So let's jump into this. Um, what is the best advice that you've ever gotten? So I'm not sure if I actually characterize it as advice or perhaps a saying that has stuck with me. And I used to work with an individual who would say, it's not the next thing, but the next thing after that. And it was really an important lesson uh, for me personally, but also as I think about our work of, can you look around the corner? Can you see the long-term and what you're doing and think through that because you're trying to chart a path for the long-term? And I would say it, it was also a nice piece of career advice when you think about how you position yourself. And if you're thinking about taking on a new role, how does that open doors to what you would like to do next? And so it's always nice to think about the next thing. I like that. I I was I was traveling my wife this weekend and she and I uh like to listen to podcasts and books on tape and I was listening to one and uh one of the things that they talked about was turning a noun into a verb which is really the idea of kind of falling in love with the process. Like don't don't look at something as static but really making, turning it into a verb and, and falling in love with what that process looks like. And like what you just said really reminded me of that because it's, what is that next thing, right? Don't look at the finality of this, but look into the next thing and the next thing and kind of planning for that. So I think that's a great one. We'll take sayings on this. I love it. Um, what's the worst advice that you've ever gotten? I'm not sure I could pin down the worst, but I think occasionally it starts with what I would do. <laughs> and <laughs> or what we've always um, done is <laughs> exactly and so I think you know the best advice comes when you're having a conversation with someone oftentimes a mentor a role model or someone who's just willing to walk you through some of the potential outcomes for what you're pondering and let you figure out the right path for you so I think that's great. Um, all right. Number three, who is someone that you'd want to have dinner with from history or have a conversation with from history? So I'd have to have a dinner party. I, I don't think I could pick one. Um, you know, certainly as a person of faith, I think wouldn't you want to have 
you know, Christ at your dinner table. But I might also like to have a whole lot of other folks to really have an engaging conversation from th throughout history, whether it's specifically from healthcare and so many people who I admire, uh, as well as, you know, figures in history, because I will admit I'm a, a history nerd. So, oh, I am too. Winston so now Churchill would probably be at the table as well. So we've, we've gotten that answer before, actually. Um, if you were to add one more to that party, who would it, who would it be then? Oh gosh. Um, that's a really great question. I, I hate to limit it to one. There's so many amazing people. Yeah, it's it's funny you you bring up Churchill though because we have gotten that answer recently, and um, I think that's uh, that's definitely an, a good one. Somebody who was willing to kind of go against the one of the hardest uh, regimes in history with the confidence that he did, I think, was really impressive to understand kind of what was going on in his mind and and the human side of that whole thing and that perspective would be really cool to ask questions around. Yeah, you look at people whose courage you admire to do the right thing under difficult circumstances. And I think that's how I, I look at it. So not just exciting, but people you can really learn from. I love that. So what's inspiring you right now? So I was telling someone the other day, I feel like my purpose is to help health organizations really break down the barriers that keep them from operating as a connected ecosystem. And I really believe that that relies on their ability to share data. And um, I'm super stubborn about that. Um, and so perhaps my stubbornness about wanting to break down those silos and helping to share data from, you know, really fueling discovery so that people can be healthier. And I think about that relative to the children's end, to how we deliver care and informing that, to, you know, how we shape care to have a higher quality, not just for a group of people, but for individuals. There's just so many silos to break down to make healthcare a more logical industry or ecosystem, if you will. And I get frustrated with the illogical nature in some of the rules that we have that keep us from doing that. And so I get up with a passion to say, let's make healthcare make sense. You know, let's make it easy for people to understand and let's harness what we have out there by removing the barriers so that we can share data and really transform. Well, I'm glad there's somebody like you that's waking up with that mission because I think there's there's certainly a lot of growth that has happened. And like any industry, there's always room for improvement. And it's nice to see there's somebody out there with that type of passion, as I'm sure there are so many others out there, but that just gives me good peace of mind. Um, so last question, where do you go to self-educate? Where do you go to get smarter? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that is a continuous process that relies on a lot of sources. So, um, you know, I love taking classes. I think it's one thing you have to continuously do throughout your career. You know, if, if your last educational learning, a formal one was, you know, 30 years ago, are you keeping up with all the things you might need and want to? So I do love that. Um, but, you know, I love to read. I love to talk to colleagues. I love to talk to our clients because I think they're all inputs into the information we use 
you know, not just to advise people, but just to live. And uh, I think you just can't stop learning at all, regardless of what field you're in. I think that's important is the the diversity of, of places getting, whether it's books or podcasts or conversations, which is one of my favorite ways, just getting kind of a diverse outlook on different things and, and getting that those types of insights is, is really important. And Jill, thank you again for, for coming on and having this conversation. Um, answering some of my questions has been really enlightening, really, uh, really educational, um, and really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the conversation as well. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Shittestray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.